So I resigned in May of 2017 and I left Facebook forever. Wow. And then I had to like recover from being in a cult, <laughs> which I'm like, <laughs> which I like laugh about, like I'm being joking, but I'm also, I'm also kind of serious because it had really like infiltrated my brain. Hello, the internet. You're listening to Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. Uh, this is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big, important things. I'm Luke T. Harrington, award-winning novelist, best-selling humorist, and please don't ask which awards and which bestseller lists because it will suddenly sound so much less impressive. Um, but thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for tuning in to... Season three of Changed My Mind. Um, we've got a lot of uh, guests coming up that I'm really excited about. And this one, uh, kicking the season off with, I'm excited about, especially this is author Lee Stein, um, who has written several books, um, including the novel Self Care, which I loved, which is why I sought her out in the first place to have her on the show. And she's also got a new poetry collection out called What to Miss When. Um, which we'll talk about in the conversation a little bit. Um, but she came on the show to tell me about how she stopped thinking of feminism as a religion, um, which I thought was an incredibly intriguing premise. Um, so I will go ahead and let her explain it to you. And I'll kick you over to our conversation and I'll see you on the other side. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you on. Lee is the author of the satirical novel Self Care. And I think as this episode hits the airwaves or the tubes, the inner tubes, whatever it is, she has a new poetry collection out, which is called What to Miss When. Lee, I love both of these books so much. I really, self care, I swear, is like, our generation's network is that <laughs> oh network I, the movie I, the movie yeah am i the first to say that i just you feel are like, the first to say that i like I, it i feel like self-care does for instagram what network did for television um mm, am it's i like dark. yeah it's dark <laughs> i'll say it, uh, it it got me you know like it really like for the first you know 150 pages or whatever i was having fun i was like this is a fun frothy comedy of manners. And then I got to the end and it was just like a kick in the gut um, without spoiling anything. And it's just some seriously biting satire. Um, and then I don't, I don't know about, I don't know what to say about what to miss when it's like, it's like our generations um, to Cameron, I guess. I mean, you referenced to Cameron, like Cameron in it several times. It's yeah. So uh, a, it's, a girl on Instagram said it's like <laughs> Bo Burnham's inside meets an episode of gossip girl. That's about right. That's about right. Yeah, it's um, it's it's plague poetry for the Pinterest set, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and both of these, both of these were books that I couldn't put down. Um, they were just so much fun, and um, I don't know. When's the last time someone ever said I I read your book of poetry and I couldn't put it down? Like, it's just. <laughs> That's like the ultimate goal because I want to write. I, I don't want to write poetry that makes people feel like a home. You know that they're doing a homework assignment. You know I want it to be pleasurable. I want it to be like eating. You know Sour Patch Kids. 
you can't yeah, there stop was, once you there start. There was some there was some real like Billy Collins energy to it. Um, I don't know. Are you a Billy Collins fan? A little bit, not a okay. huge fan, but okay. but he's also very accessible. Yeah, I mean, it's in a very similar vein of like kind of free verse, like easy to read, breezy, but clear. You know, obviously, you worked very hard to make it breezy and easy to read. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it's very funny. Um, I had a blast with both of those books. It's not it's not often that you uh, get to talk to an author that whose work you just kind of stumbled on and kind of blew your mind. So. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you on the show. Is there anything I left out? Is there anything else you do that we need to mention here? No, that's it. I, I think I'm I'm going, I'm going to have an uphill battle convincing people to read a book about COVID. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I keep thinking like, you know, these poems are about COVID, but I promise you like this is the book that you want to read, like that there is something in it for you, even if you're you're hesitant to read anything about COVID so soon. I mean, I won't yeah. even say so soon after because we're still in it. <laughs> It's um, it's not like dark, depressing COVID stuff. It's like right. light at the end of the tunnel stuff, yeah. right? which I don't know if we're really at the end of the tunnel, but it's, you know, it's kind of in a spirit of here's, here's what we all suffered through together. Let's laugh at it. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, obviously, this is a show where we talk about things people have changed their minds about. So, you know, I, I reached out to you with nothing in particular in mind. I just, basically, I wanted to um, have you on the show so I could say, I love your work. So I've done my, my job here. That's we're five minutes in, we're done. No. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I, I reached out to you because of that. And, you know, I asked, um, what would you like to talk about? What's something you've changed your mind about? And I believe what you said was something along the lines of, I changed my mind about practicing feminism as a religion or something like that that's right which i am utterly fascinated to hear about um as the male in this conversation i guess i should talk as little as possible um because <laughs> i don't want to be that guy um but this but, is interesting because this is part of the religious doctrine this is part oh, of yeah. it okay. that, that men should be quiet this is part of the uh, <laughs> the dogma that i had to memorize men are to be seen and not heard right um <laughs> Right on. Well, maybe I will talk a little bit about that, but um, I mostly want to hear you talk about it. So yeah, why don't we start at the beginning? Can you define for me what feminism as religion, what, what do you mean by that? And how did this start? So I want to tell a story about my work as a feminist organizer, but I think the beginning of the story is actually um, the beginning of myself as someone who's extremely online. So that started when I was 13 years old and I mm. joined an email list serve for fans of Francesca Leah Block, who you might know. She's like a YA fantasy author and she writes these books like set in LA about these like fairies, but they're fairies in real life. I was really into these books and I felt very isolated at school. I was clinically depressed. I didn't have a lot of friends and the internet was there for me. And I made all these friends on this list serve. And we became pen pals. People sent me mixtapes. I got my first mixed CD in the mail that someone made me. And I like remember holding it and being like, how do you make this? Like, it was like a miracle. You put the songs you want on a CD. It was like life-changing. That's how I discovered <laughs> Sylvia Plath and Sexton. I'd never heard of these people before this, this group. So really, I mean, you could even say this group set me on the path of being a writer because it started to introduce me to, um, you know, my early influences. Um, 
So the internet has always been a place where I made friends and I found community. It came very naturally to me. And back then, this was the late 90s or the early aughts when I was blogging on LiveJournal, it was uncool to meet people on the internet, right? You had to lie or make up a story about how you met someone. Like I made a friend on LiveJournal in the late, what year would have that been? The early 2000s. And she's one of my oldest friends. She was just a bridesmaid at my wedding. And we met on LiveJournal as teenage girls. Cute. Very cute. <laughs> so the internet has been like the gift of my life, um, online community. So it was only natural that in 2014, I became a member of this secret Facebook group called Binders Full of Women Writers <laughs> that was started by a Canadian freelancer as a joke based on the Mitt Romney gaffe that he had it binders full of women. Feels like ancient history now, but yeah. Um, it feels so was... ancient and we were so <laughs> mad. And now when I think about Mitt Romney, this is part of my journey. When I think about <laughs> Mitt Romney now, I'm like, Mitt, I'll vote for you, man. You know, like if you, you know, like now I like respect Mitt Romney so much, but at the time it was outrageous what he said. Yeah. Yeah. So this Canadian freelancer starts this secret group invite only. She thinks 20 women are going to join. Uh, within three months, there were 30,000 of us. Wow. It was a moment. It was a movement. <laughs> I was obsessed with this group. I checked the Facebook group seven days a week, you know, as soon as I woke up before I went to bed. And in July of 2014, I had this idea, which was like, what if we all met in person, right? Because this has been my whole life was like, meet people on the internet and then find <laughs> out how can you meet them in person and make them your friends. So I had the idea to start a conference for women writers. So at the time in 2014, I had written and published two books. Um, I was a babysitter and I taught poetry in the New York City public schools. So I was like a gig. I also taught musical theater. So I had multiple gigs, wow. no full-time job. Um, I had the time and the energy to like put on a show in the barn. I posted <laughs> to the Facebook group, like, let's, let's have a show, like, let's have a conference. 100 people volunteered to help. I wow. started organizing. I met a co-founder. She became my co-founder because she was smart enough to say, we need to raise money. And that had not occurred to me. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that, that would be helpful to raise money. Who knew it cost money to put, put on a show? I had right? no That's, idea. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea. To put, on, to put on a conference in New York City costs $80,000. Oh, sure. oh, yeah. Yeah. So we started a Kickstarter. We raised $50,000 in 30 days. I mean, it was incredible. It was on fire. I had all these people stepping up to help. There was this huge energy around it. Um, we, our first conference was covered by MSNBC. We were on Huffington Post Live. We were getting all this press and attention. So the conference piece of it was a huge success and something I'm, I will always be proud of um, that I did this. But what was happening simultaneously is that um, we became a nonprofit. So we, we became a 501c3 because my co-founder says like, said, we should do this like not only once, we should do this every year. And not only should we do it every year in New York, we should do it twice a year because we have to go to LA because it's even harder for women to work in film and TV. And I was just swept up in the momentum of this. And I was like, let's do it. And I was like, I'll be executive director. So suddenly I'm executive director of a nonprofit organization. It costs $80,000 to do a conference. So we have to raise money above that to even pay me anything. For sure, yeah. And there are no grants for nonprofit administration. There are grants for the fun stuff, but not the admin. Mm -hmm. 
So I ended up doing this for three years. Um, the most I ever made in one year was $12,500. So this was a labor of love um, that I gave a lot to. And I worked a lot of jobs on the side to be able to do this. For sure. I mean, that won't even cover rent in New York City. Oh, so. no. <laughs> and I had I, I was lucky. I had a very supportive partner and he was paying the rent. That's basically how I could do yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. My boyfriend paid the rent. So the conferences are going great. But meanwhile, there's still this Facebook group and my co-founder and I talk about it and we're like, we should take over the Facebook group because if we're this nonprofit, the founder in Canada, this was never her dream or her goal. Like she wasn't seeking power or status or influence. She was like, I'd be happy if you guys took over. You know, it's a huge, <laughs> huge project. Yeah. So the politics of this Facebook group, which I thought at the time were unique, <laughs> to this women's writers group. Today, I understand they are the politics and the drama and the interpersonal infighting of every single community on the internet. <laughs> you know this. Yes. I thought it was our group. And I thought for, for those three years, I kept thinking, how can I keep failing as a leader? I keep getting it wrong. I couldn't mm -hmm. figure out how to get it right. Mm -hmm. So there's a, the first turning point is... January 2015, Jonathan Chait publishes a cover story in New York Magazine called Not a Very PC, PC Thing to Say mm. about language policing online. Mm -hmm. And he quotes directly from what is supposed to be our secret group. So someone in the group <laughs> has leaked screenshots to him. Yeah. So what happens is everyone in the group is DMing me or messaging me. Or, or tagging me in these threads, you have to catch the person. And so, so the witch hunts began. Exactly. Dang. So this was the first time I realized, and my co-founder was like very smart about it. And she was like, we're not the police of the internet. Like, there's no mm. way I could know which of 30,000 people mm -hmm. leaked screenshots to a journalist. Mm -hmm. But the pressure for me to um, find this person and punish them was so intense, I broke out in hives all over my face. I had a very Holy physical crud. reaction to this. Wow. And when I look back today, I realize the irony of, you know, a lot of the women in the, there's definitely, uh, this is where the feminism comes in, right? A lot of these women writers, a lot of them were invested and cared about social justice. And that is not something that I would criticize. I think, I, I mean, I care about social justice too. Sure. But there is this irony that the people who care a lot about social justice and who are pushing for police reform and criminal justice reform are also policing each other mm -hmm. and surveilling <laughs> each other and telling each other what words to use and what to say and what not to say. And so what started to happen to me over time is that this surveillance mindset took over my own mind. Mm. So I found myself policing my own thoughts second guessing what I would normally say, even thinking about the entertainment or the books or the media that I consumed about whether I was being a good feminist as I consumed it. Like everything started being filtered through this lens of, well, is this a feminist thing to do? Is this a feminist thing to read? Is this a feminist thing to write? So to me, this was the beginning of a kind of indoctrination. And, and one thing that I still can't figure out to this day is like, I've always felt like a nonconformist. I, 
I, you know, I made all these friends on the internet before it was cool. I dropped out of high school when I was 17. I said, I'm moving to New York to be an actress. No one believed in me. I said, that's fine. I'm going to go wait tables. Mm -hmm. Like F you, like I'm doing my own thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's something that I, that does feel like a part of my identity and I take a lot of pride in. So it's interesting to me that I became so susceptible to the peer pressure and the group think mm -hmm. because I like to think of myself and who defies or rebels against mm -hmm. norms. Yeah. But I think it's because the internet had been so important to me and my online community was even more important to me than my offline community mm -hmm. that I didn't want to lose that. And the stakes only got higher and higher as I became more influential. And I gave interviews as, you know, the co-founder of this organization that the Washington Post called me a leading feminist. You know, I was like riding the girl boss track, even though I wasn't making any money. <laughs> yeah. I was on the girl boss track. And so I just found myself censoring myself. Um, I was called in often to mediate these conflicts between different women. And it just became increasingly disturbing. And this, this will become the seed of my novel self-care, which is ultimately <laughs> a book about women taking down other women in the name of being good feminists. Mm -hmm. So this ironic, um, this ironic, I wouldn't say cancel culture, but it was, it was um, you know, takedowns. Mm -hmm. and and harming each other because it was competing for who who was who was righteous and who was wrong and deserved mm -hmm. to be shamed and punished one of the one of the writers i've encountered recently i haven't read his book yet which i need to but um i don't know if the name freddie debauer freddie debauer means anything to yes. you yeah planet of cops that's everyone can google that yeah um and I, I've just I've heard a lot of interviews with him mostly. I've I've read some of his some of his essays and heard some interviews. And I, he has this thing he says a lot, um, which I'm gonna butcher it, but it's it's something like once an institution exists, the acts of the people within that institution are going to be geared mainly, primarily towards increasing their status within the institution or something like that. Yes, and keeping right? it, so it, keeping it at least. Right. So it doesn't it almost doesn't matter what your institution is founded to do, like if whether you're talking about like a charity or a business or a church or whatever, like. People always look out for their own self-interest, which means within the institution, they're going to be doing what they think will increase their their um, status in it. Um, That's absolutely right. <laughs> and it was really I was really naive because I'm. I'm like a doer. I'm a maker and a doer. And so when I see a problem, I think, well, what what's within my power to change? What can I do? At our sure. very first conference in 2014, there was this feminist organization called Vita that would mm -hmm. count the number of bylines in major magazines by gender and then publish these pie charts. Poetry magazine historically did very well. But um, <laughs> Harper's Harper's was the worst in terms mm -hmm. of gender disparity. And so I thought, like, what can we do? We can invite an editor from Harper's to our conference and they, we can have women pitch ideas for Harper's because they have to get better at their numbers. So I emailed multiple editors at Harper's. They, they didn't have a single woman they could send to the conference. Wow. And they said, but we can send James Marcus, who was like at the time a, ma a man, obviously, but he was the executive editor. And they're like, we'll send him. And I was like, great, sure. come on down. Yeah. Um, so that's my spirit and that's my attitude is like, what can we do? Um, sure. We offered generous scholarships and over time we, we started offering travel stipends and childcare stipends. So we would give women money so that they could, they could afford to come to the conference, not only just a free ticket.
But but in the Facebook group, there was not this attitude. It was all about winning these little arguments mm -hmm. online. Mm -hmm. um, and it was such a time suck. And so this is leading to the next turning point in the story, sure. which is that the the backdrop behind all this is we're getting up to the 2016 election between mm -hmm. Clinton and Trump. And suddenly everything is about um, it's it's like life or day, death stakes. There's not no topic you can talk about that's not political. Suddenly everything <laughs> is political. Yeah, it's yeah. all charged. And it, our conference was one week before the election in New York. Oh my gosh! So we all thought Hillary would win. That's the mindset we were going in. Yeah, with. yeah. Um, we thought it was a shoe in, <laughs> and um, there was a controversy that erupted because we had a policy that said our attendance policy was eighteen and over, meaning no children no infants at the conference. Mm -hmm. There was a big debate that erupted. Some people said, this is not feminist. If, if you're calling yourself a feminist conference, you have to welcome nursing infants. Some other people mm -hmm. said, no, women deserve a break from being child carers. <laughs> um, we, we shouldn't have to be caretakers 24 seven. Yeah, That's yeah. not feminist. <laughs> so I am like, I'm a people pleaser. I'm a diplomat. I'm a compromiser. I kept searching for the compromise. I kept talking to everyone on my team saying, what should we do? What should we do? And they would all say like, I think we should have the policy the same, but Lee, it's your call. Like you make the call. And I realized they were looking for me to step up and make mm. this executive decision, mm. but I kept wanting consensus. And my co-founder said, we're not going to be bullied by the internet. Like we're not going to be bullied by the mob. We're not changing it. And a petition was signed by people who had never even been to the conference or volunteered for the conference, petitioning the conference. And this was like so bizarre to me because I thought, what right do you have to tell me what to do at the conference? You've never shown up. You've never volunteered. And here I have my actual staff that is volunteering and they say, keep the policy as it is. So we ended up not changing the policy. And then a secret, different secret private Facebook group strategized a Twitter <laughs> campaign to take us down. So when our oh conference gosh. hashtag trended that weekend, they used it for leverage um, to destroy our conference and to get all these influential feminists on Twitter to um, post critiques of us, even though these people had never been to the conference either. And I just remember being in my hotel room crying, just thinking I failed as a leader. I don't like I screwed it up. There was something else I could have done. Like I couldn't get it right. I kept looking to how to get it right, but there wasn't a way to get it right. It's just one of these issues that feminists are divided on. Yeah. To this yeah. day, I still don't know what the right answer is. <laughs> you know, either way, people would have gotten mad at me. There, there yeah. is no, there is no consensus. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really, it ended up being like a real um, generational divide. It was the millennial moms who had had children more recently. Mm -hmm. who were really pushing for a policy that allowed nursing infants. And it was the Gen Xers and the boomers who were saying things like, I pumped in the 80s, you know, when I had to go to a conference, <laughs> like, this is what you do, grow up. Um, had to walk uphill in the snow both ways. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I see this That's a lot wild. too. Yeah. I mean, this is like a bigger thing that I see in, in the feminist discourse. There, there are generational differences and there are young people pushing for new things and there are old people pushing back, older people pushing back. And um, I don't know if I can say like one side is right or wrong. I feel like it's a, it's this, it's a debate that we're having. We're having a debate. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, and it seems like, okay, so 
you know, feel free to tell me I'm totally wrong about this, but it seems like you could have done something like said infants are welcome, but also feel free to leave them home. Like what, why is it an either or thing in this case? Because the women who said, I paid a few hundred dollars for my ticket. I took time off work. I flew to New York. I'm here to pitch my book to agents. I don't want to hear a baby crying in the background. It's distracting. I'm yeah. here to focus on my career. I, ha I left my kids at home for my husband or my partner, or whoever, to take care mm -hmm. of them. And I'm focused here. That, yeah. was their, that was their argument. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that, I guess. I can see that. Yeah, man. Um... But no, nothing fires people up more. I mean, like, you know, like if I wanted to get someone mad at me, like I would have this, you know, I would have this debate oh, with sure. them because it's, sure. it's extremely divisive. Yeah, no, I get that. And the internet seems to love divisive things, you know? Um, I, yeah, I've, done, I've done this podcast uh, for, for, you know, two-ish years now. And I, so many episodes, I feel like we always come back to social media because social media is what has broken the discourse you know like and i i don't know i don't know if this is like a fixable thing I mean, it might just be the nature of what social media is is that people don't go to social media for like long thoughtful debates or you know flowery essays like they go to social media for quick emotional highs you know and there's almost no no better emotional high than dunking on someone that you're mad at so I don't know. Do you think that sort of thing is, uh, do you agree with me? That's almost inevitable in like, no, it's, it's engineered this way. This is how social media was designed. Right. It, it, it hijacks your brain chemistry. So you go back for those dopamine hits. So I'm addicted to Twitter. That's my, uh, that's my drug of choice. <laughs> yeah. I go there for a dopamine hit. It, it has now like colonized my brain. I think in tweets, <laughs> I know exactly like what's going to get laughs. Right. So I'll post yeah, a yeah. joke. I know if something bothers me, I can go tweet about it and people will really engage with it. If I'm frustrated about something, that's what really gets engagement. Yeah. We also make these snap judgments about who we're talking to based on these short profiles and tiny pictures. Mm -hmm. We're making judgments based on the race of the person we're talking to, the gender of the person we're talking to, what's in their bio. Are they, do they seem like a left-wing person or a right-wing person? <laughs> yeah. Within yeah. seconds, we, know all, we think we know all about this other person. Yeah. Well, and that, I mean, that connects in interesting ways to me, at least to what you were saying about being like a nonconformist, you know, like, is it possible to be a nonconformist when you have to summarize who you are and what, like 200 characters in your Twitter bio, you know, like, it, is it possible to be a nonconformist without conforming to nonconformity, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, like, I mean, you say, I'm going to go to New York and wait tables and be an actress. Like you're probably the millionth person to have that thought, you know, <laughs> totally, it's not totally, like, <laughs> totally. it's just like for where I came from, it was like yeah. being a non-conformist. But once I arrived in New York, I was like everybody else. <laughs> it's all relative, right? Yeah. You're and right I about mean, the Twitter bios. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess that's, what's interesting to me about this, you know, this Facebook group is that maybe it's it's a whole group presumably of people who think of themselves to one degree or another as nonconformists, and it immediately starts enforcing conformity um that's right that's really interesting and, and what do you think that means i don't know 
there are always, and anyone who's in any online community will know this, that there's always a vocal minority who kind of set the terms of engagement, mm. right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. they determine how we're going to talk, you know, what are the rules? I mean, we talked about rules all the time. There were rules in the group, like, you know, and we had moderators, we would try to enforce the rules, but no one's reading those, you know, it's like, yeah. These are human beings, you know, there's people with different levels of, you know, digital literacy using social media, mm -hmm. um, people of different ages and people, but, but what happens online is also um, reading everything in bad faith, assuming the worst, assuming the yeah. worst interpretation of someone's comment, right? Like, how dare you, <laughs> instead of pausing to say, I, they probably meant it in this way, like it may have come across wrong, but they probably meant it in an encouraging way or a positive way. Or a, um, the other thing that I think is part of this like cultish mindset was you were not allowed to be curious. Mm. You, yeah. Or you would be told to educate yourself. Right? <laughs> like that's the classic line. Um, but you couldn't ask questions. If you if you ask questions, you were being ignorant. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's why you ask a question because you're ignorant and need to know, right? Right. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, it's it's also interesting that people use ignorant as like a an insult. Um, like lacking knowledge is not a crime. Like we all lack knowledge about something, you know. Right. But um, same thing with privilege, right? Like everybody has privilege in one way or another. But some somehow at some point, the progressive side of the internet decided to use it as like a a scarlet letter almost like you have privilege shut up you know right and you better acknowledge it but this is i had never heard of intersectional feminism before i was part of this group i'd never heard really? that before huh. and when it was explained to me i understood it i mean i understand what intersectional feminism is or intersectionality i understand it that there are these intersecting identities or privileges or disadvantages so that my experience as a white woman is going to be different than the experience of a black woman we can't just say all women i understand right. that right right but the way you say the privilege discourse or intersectionality, the way it gets weaponized is when you start counting up the points each person has. And that's how you determine who wins an argument. <laughs> well, she's not only, you know, a woman of color, she's a disabled woman of color. So she has more points than me. And I found myself thinking to myself, should I disclose things about myself because it would give me more of an advantage? Like, do I disclose that I've struggled with mental illness? Do I disclose that I'm a survivor of domestic violence? Which to me feels so gross and is so yeah. not a part of my identity. That's not how I identify by right. the worst things that have happened to me. Mm -hmm. But there were situations where I thought, oh, everyone's piling on top of me. Should I, should I bring out my victim points? For leverage in this argument and that like just that thought made me hate myself to even think those things but that was like the level of the discourse that it would get so ugly and so fixated on identity yeah for sure and it would require disclosure and of course online we don't know we make judgments and assumptions about other people we don't really know everything about other people we don't know mm -hmm. what they're really going through unless they disclose it unless they put <laughs> the hashtag in their bio but of course we're so much more than the hashtags in our bios. Well, and even disclosing it is a little iffy, right? Because there are communities where it is a huge advantage to claim those things. So there's a huge incentive to lie about it, right? Like that's another problem. And there's all kinds of, <laughs> I mean, I mean, deliciously insane internet controversies like sciencing by, you know, who pretended oh, to be yes. a bisexual Native American scientist. <laughs> and the whole thing was manufactured and then she faked her own death. I mean, it's nuts. But yeah, look up the story if you haven't if you haven't read about it. 
listeners because it's incredible sciencing by sciencing underscore bi yeah anyway but you're right there are certain communities where there is an advantage to claim certain identity markers um and those can be lied about totally all right well let's um tell me where you are now because the way you phrased it was i no longer think of feminism as a religion so i assume you still identify as a feminist am i am i off or are you yeah i'm still a feminist so so the final straw came in 2017 and um a rumor spread about my friend kat rosenfield that she was leaking so it all comes full circle that she was leaking screenshots of a secret <laughs> facebook group to a journalist and i said to my team I said, that's my friend, Kat. I said, we live in the same town. I've had coffee with her. She would never do this. Mm -hmm. And I was told it must be so hard to know your friend would do that. <laughs> and I thought I have no authority. I'm, I'm the leader of this entire community. I've yeah. run six conferences. I'm in $8,000 of credit card debt. I was wearing wrist braces because I had a repetitive stress injury from oh how much time gosh. I was spending online. And I thought my words don't even matter. Like I have no integrity, no one believes me. I can't even stand up for my own friend. Mm. And I thought I, I can't be a part of this anymore. That was the mm. final straw. I was like, I gotta get out of the group think. This is, this is like ruining lives. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I resigned in May of 2017 and I left Facebook forever. Wow. And then I had to like recover from being in a cult, <laughs> which I'm like, <laughs> which I like laugh about, like I'm being joking, but I'm also, I'm also kind of serious because it had really like infiltrated my brain that I had to think about my whole life about whether I was sufficiently feminist, whether I was, you know, sufficiently progressive, whether mm -hmm. I could be caught or found out, you know, doing something that wasn't sufficiently progressive. <sighs> Hey, thanks so much for listening to Change My Mind. I will get back to this conversation real quick, but I wanna take a minute to tell you about our brand new Patreon. Um, we are a listener-supported podcast. Everything we do is paid for with donations. You can go to patreon.com slash change my mind and support us. Uh, supporters get all sorts of cool benefits, including early access to episodes, VIP access to meetings between me and my producer, and uh, access to bonus episodes as well. One bonus episode every month. Um, this month, in September, our bonus episode is this really fascinating conversation I had with Tasha Robinson, who's a film critic, about how she came around to appreciate horror cinema. But I work with a guy named Scott Tobias, who I still podcast with uh, on a, on a bi-weekly basis. And we call each other frenemies because we disagree about <laughs> just about everything. It's like, <laughs> and one of the big things is he loves exploitation cinema. He loves extreme cinema. Um, mm. he, he loves movies that the rest of us call torture porn. Mm. And he would write some very intelligent things about some of these movies, about specifically the, the hostile era how we were really channeling our our fear of torture um, mm. because of some of the things going on in during uh, George W. Bush's presidency. Mm. You know, the question of like 
it's come out that America is torturing people. Yeah. What does that mean about us as uh, a, a group of people? What does that mean about us as a country? To hear the rest of that conversation with Tasha, along with all the other bonus episodes we'll be doing this season, please go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash change my mind, where you can become a supporter of the show for as little as a dollar a month. Thank you so much to all our listeners and supporters. And I will go ahead and flip you back over to this week's episode. Um, And so I would say over the last, that was 2017. So over the last four years, I'm still, you know, on the left politically. um, But I think I have moved more to the center. I mean, it's like, where are you going to go politically when the right is Donald Trump? It's like, there's nowhere else to go. You might as, yeah. Right. Um, For sure. Yeah. But I, I, something that I'm really always thinking about is, so I've moved a little more to the center. Like I'm a little more like into free speech. Yeah. <laughs> this is kind yeah. of new to me. Um, free speech, like quit policing each other's speech. I'm a little <laughs> more into that. But mm-hmm. most of the millennials I know have moved further to the left. Mm. And so I'm curious to see, are they going to have a moment like I did where they realize this is a stifling way to live, to be policing yeah. your own thoughts and to be mm-hmm. afraid that you'll be canceled or called out. Um, are they going to, like me, move a little <laughs> bit center or not? I don't know. But yeah. I, because I went on this, this transformation, it makes me curious about other, others. Yeah. I mean, it's weird to watch it, the left and the right kind of go completely crazy in, you know, very different, but in some ways, parallel ways and be like, I don't think I want to be part of either of those. Right. Um, and I, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess my question is, do you see a light at the end of the tunnel for the general discourse? Like, is it going to get worse before it gets better? Is it? The light I see is that people are less online. I, I think yeah. people are less online now that, um, well, you know, of course we don't know what's going to happen with the Delta variant if we're going to have to go back into lockdown. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But there is less stuff happening on Twitter right now. And I think it's because people are outside and I say good for them, <laughs> you know, like to have something else in our lives because it got so bad during the pandemic. Yeah, for sure. There was nothing else to do. It like became reality TV to see who's <laughs> the main character on Twitter today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's ultimately the problem of um, social media is that, you know, as a rule, inside of social media or outside it, people enjoy conflict. but in meat space, IRL, there's like a logical end to conflict. Like you either make up, you come to blows, you get arrested, whatever, but there's just, there's no end to it. Like the conflict doesn't build toward anything. It just spreads like cancer, you know? Um, That's really interesting <laughs> that there's no end point. It could, it could go on forever. Cause there's, there's no way for like a fist fight to break out or people for to walk away or whatever like it's just you just endlessly post at each other you know right um right and, and, you, mem- and you memorize the feuds of your and you like say like well that person like hates this person because six months ago this person <laughs> said well and you dig up the screenshots and endlessly recycle them yes um 
like it can't it can't be good for people like it just can't you know um and i'm in this awkward place where i'm like well being on social media is probably terrible for me but i have books to sell i have a podcast to promote so (laughs) what's terrible about it for you what would you uh, leave behind if you could i feel like i'm old enough and wise enough at this point that i've I, i figured out how to kind of how to kind of stay out of the endless flame wars, you know, like I, I've kind of backed away from like arguing with people, you know? Um, but I guess ultimately the, the, the real problem for me is just you, you're on Twitter. I'm hooked on Facebook personally, which I know is like super hashtag basic, but whatever. I'm, I'm a Facebook guy. <laughs> um, yeah, every time I log into Facebook, like my feed is like half my feed, it feels like are just like super cringy political posts, you know, and it's not unique to one side or the other. It's people on both sides just posting terrible arguments for. I, I don't want to say terrible ideas, sometimes they're pretty good ideas, but just terrible, like thoughtless arguments um, that just really just depress me to see someone making them, you know, like that's, that's my, that's my problem is I just, I scroll through Facebook and I just get more and more depressed and angrier and angrier because I see so many people posting stupid stuff. And I'm just like, go outside, get some exercise. But what I find so interesting about what you just said is that you see from both sides of the aisle. Yeah. That's so interesting because most people's feeds, they only see people they already agree with. Yeah. yeah. And so there's this call for let's follow diverse voices, follow diverse people. But often when someone on the left says that they mean, you know, follow people of different races or different gender identities, but it's still people. As who long have the as same, they agree with me. Yeah. Right. As long <laughs> as they have the same politics. And so I've gotten one thing I've like tried to force myself to do is like follow more diverse accounts in a sense that I might not always agree. Like mm-hmm. when I'm scrolling my feed now, there'll be stuff that I'm like, that I agree with. And there'll be other stuff where I'm like, well, I don't agree with that. And, and I still mm-hmm. have this like defensive reaction. Like I should unfollow this person because I don't agree with them. <laughs> and then I have to be like, okay, wait, there's a reason you're following them. You don't have to agree with everything every person says. Like, yeah. right? Like that's, that's the tolerance. And that's what we have to do to get along with one another. And I guess the, the trick there is probably find people you disagree with who are making arguments in good faith and not just trolling. Of course, triggering the libs, whatever. Right, right, um, right. <laughs> so yeah, right. Like I'm not follow, following Candace Owens, for instance. Yeah, or follow David French or someone, right? Like, right, right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but e- but yes. like when I was running BinderCon, there's mm-hmm. no way I would have followed any Republican on social media. <laughs> I would have been paranoid that someone would have found out I was following David French. Mm-hmm. And then mm. what would happen to me, they would say, Lee, why are you following David French? And then I would have to answer for myself. This is the paranoia that I was mm. living with. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let me ask you this, because I'm really curious. Is BinderCon still a thing? Is the Facebook group still a thing? If I went there, would it be just a ghost town with tumbleweeds rolling through? What, what happened? Did the whole thing blow up or is it still burning as bright as the sun yeah facebook group as far as i know is still there and one thing i did before i left is it's now called the binders so that it's more gender inclusive so it's not just binders full of women writers it's now the binders which i think was a positive instead of women (laughs) but i think that's a positive change like i'm i'm proud that i did that like i have no i have no qualms about that yeah Um, and it's like a shorthand you know if, if you're in the club it's like a cool shorthand if you're in the club you know you're a binder or not 
Um, <laughs> the conference died with me. So when I left, um, the conference died. So there yeah. were six in total, three in LA, three in New York. And um, it was, it's the end of an era. Let me, let me ask you this because I'm curious. And I hope this isn't an unfair question. I'm just, I'm just super curious. Like, did running the conference for you be, did, did that become as much about like the high of just feeling like you're important and doing something important as it was the subject matter of the conference? I was really proud of it. It wasn't mm -hmm. all about me. Like it wasn't the Lee Stein show. And, and at the <laughs> time, like I was getting a lot of advice to make it more like I was getting a lot of advice to brand myself and become even more girl bossy and do even <laughs> more speaking. Yeah. And I thought like, but speak on what? Like I yeah. wasn't interested in branding myself okay. um, as much as I, I actually loved like the logistics of making spreadsheets. Like this is what I really enjoy, <laughs> like group emails. Um, I relate to that. Logistics, like I'm very detail oriented. You know, people would say delegate that stuff, like get a volunteer to do this mm -hmm. stuff, you know, like like the spreadsheet for the badges with everyone's names and pronouns. Like I created that spreadsheet, that was me. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I love that stuff. So that, so um, that's what I genuinely, I genuinely enjoyed. All right, let me ask you this. Um, aside from your new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? What did I learn from the experience of changing my mind? Because the, the fir first I wanted to answer the question, like, what did I learn from the conference? And the thing I learned from the conference is it's so much easier to criticize and destroy than it is to make something. Mm because social media makes it so easy to be a critic. Anyone can be mm -hmm. a critic, you mm -hmm. know? You can say, well, this is shit. Um, but then it's like, well, go make your own thing. Go write your own book. Go make sure. a TV show. Yeah. Go start yeah. a conference. Go make a conference where it's all women and babies. You know, that's what mm -hmm. we would joke mm -hmm. to each other at the time when we were stressed out. Baby con. Baby con, that's right, <laughs> baby con. Why not? Like, yeah. start it. Um, yeah. What I learned from changing my mind is, I think, getting more comfortable thinking for myself and feeling safe disagreeing. Hmm. Because the other thing I don't want to become is I don't want to become one of these like anti-woke, heterodox, intellectual dark web people. Yeah. yeah. Some of whom I follow because I'm curious, but... I'm not going in that direction either. I'm trying to carve a lane for myself where I think for myself and I, and I still have progressive politics, especially in terms of like economic justice, like class is really important to me. Yeah, um, sure. So I, I wanna be able to be a free thinker and not to be lumped in with one group or the other, right? I'm not an SJW and I'm not an intellectual dark web person either, you mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of other people like me. It's just so easy online to sort people into tribes. I mean, I think our brains naturally do this. We want to group things that are alike together. Yeah. And say, well, this person is part of that group, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I'd like to be myself and I'd like to agree with some people and disagree with others or agree with some ideas and disagree with others and feel and feel like I'm not being threatened. You know, it's like this, it's really like a fight or flight thing, you know, that really gets triggered mm -hmm. that feels so it feels so familiar to me when it gets triggered now on social media because I remember it from the Facebook days where there's conflict and it feels like there's so much at stake. It's like 
you know, it's the, it's the fear of being canceled, whatever that means, but it's that, it's that fear. Am I going to lose my standing in the group? Is the group going to turn against me? Yeah. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's an intense fear. Well, and there is a real, a realness to the emotional experience of like the internet pile on when people are like swarming you and filling up your DMs, like, you know, I mean, in theory, yes, you can just turn off your phone, turn off your computer, but uh, like, you still know what's going on and it still affects you, you know? Um, and th in this way, I think I was really lucky because it was never about canceling Lee Stein over the baby yeah. policy. It was about the conference. Sure. Whereas sure. today with the fall of all the girl bosses, which I'm also writing about, it's about the woman. It's about the face of the company and mm -hmm, it's about how mm -hmm. she failed. And so I was actually very lucky in 2016 that it was not about me personally, because where yeah. would I be right now? Maybe I still would have written self-care. I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Would I have been allowed to write a book? I mean, who knows? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you did because it is a great book. Um, before we uh, close, I have three questions. I try to ask all my guests uh, just to kind of scratch that philosophical itch. Uh, ontology, epistemology, how do we know ourselves? How do we know what's true? Um, Lee, what is identity? Does everyone have an identity? How do you know your identity? What do you think? Okay, I came prepared with a quote from... <laughs> You my, are a detailed person. Well done. <laughs> this is a quote from my icon, Georgia O'Keeffe. And uh, she says, where I was born and where and how I have lived is unimportant. It is what I have done with where I have been that should be of interest. So to me, identity is, is what you have made and what you have done. Mm. Um, it doesn't we're obsessed with these um, markers of identity, especially in America. We're obsessed with these racial markers, gender. Um, we don't really talk about class, but that's, of course, an identity marker. Um, where are you from? Are you one of these, you know, East Coast libs? Or are you from a flyover state? But um, yeah, but I don't want to be known for those things, you know, as much as I want to be known for what I what I've left behind, what I've made, you know, um, what I've what mark I've made on Earth. So yeah. that's how I think of identity. I don't know that that's like factually true, but it's, it's how I, how I think to answer the question. No, I relate to that. I relate to that. Um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a, a certain internet culture about trying to draw identity from what's innate about you versus what you've done. Um, I think people would be healthier if they thought about themselves in terms of what they do as opposed to, what they just are. I don't know. Um, so I guess Georgia O'Keeffe's identity is a bunch of paintings of vagina flowers. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. And you know, when she, she went blind, she lost her eyesight. And right, so she yeah. learned to sculpt, right which on. I think is so beautiful. You know, <laughs> she was, she was always about making. Um, second, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Oh, that's such a deep, this is such a deep question. All this philosophy stuff, it just makes me feel like, like, oh no, I like, I'm back at the new school and people are like arguing with each other and like the professor's <laughs> just quiet. And it's like, I always wanted the professor to just say like, this is the answer. And I would write it in my notebook. This, this whole podcast was just an excuse to like keep the college freshman experience going through my whole <laughs> life, you know, just sit up late with people talking about like, what's life all about, man? Yeah, that's funny. You know? <laughs>
human nature. I mean, yeah, we're all animals, right? So there's some things like deep in our brains that like we have evolved over time to have. Um, but when I think about when I was thinking about this question earlier, and like, what's fundamental to human nature, like, I think we are social creatures. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important for us to feel belonging. You know, people can die of loneliness. And sure. I think that's why this this social media climate feels so threatening mm. because we could lose our standing in the group. We could lose mm -hmm. professional connections. We could lose friends. We could lose family. You know, you saw all these people bragging about unfriending relatives on Facebook because they voted for the wrong person. So we, we all want to feel part of a web. Yeah, for sure. Um, and we, we, we can't survive without that. And that's one of the interesting things to me about um, these groups, like like the Binders, for instance, is you know what holds communities together, as I understand it, at least, tends to be shared ideas, shared beliefs, shared principles. You know, whether you're talking about religion, political parties, whatever, right? Um, and I feel like so often what happens online is these communities form around presumably shared beliefs and then explode when people realize there's not total agreement about everything. Right, because it's, this is exactly like my own, my own uh, naivete that, you know, I thought I was a part of a group of women writers, meaning we were identifying by what we were doing. Yeah, we yeah. all wanted to be writers, but there was just recently this year, a blow up in a separate related binders that was all about writing jobs and mm -hmm. someone posted so it was like a job it's a job board for women writers and someone posted a job opening at fox news mm -hmm. and someone else said how dare you post this this is racist and it <laughs> erupted into this controversy and there were articles written about it that said you know the binders is like you know it's left-wing politically and i was like well that's news to me i mean that might have been implicit when i was there but i don't remember mm -hmm. ever saying this group is only for people who you know vote democrat we never said that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, even though someone else would say well you based it on this mitt romney you know joke <laughs> yeah but that's how it has evolved over time that 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 it has taken on this political identity instead of an identity around making and doing that you're a writer mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and finally what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? What do you think? This is such a painful question because I feel like the whole country can't even agree. I mean, we're we're all divided. <laughs> you know, and that's why it's in the script. You know, I mean, this this podcast, the core of the idea was born out of like the depths of the Trump era in 2018. So I'm wondering about these questions as much as anyone, you know? Um, I'm hoping f eventually one of my guests will give me like this we'll amazing right answer. answer. Yeah. And I'll be like, great, let's shut the whole thing down. Let's be done. <laughs> right. Because if, is someone's belief their truth? Because right. I could say, well, that's not true. And someone could say, but it's what I believe. <laughs> so we have this conflation, I think, of belief with truth. Hmm. And it's hard to separate those things. Even, even like something like the 1619 Project, mm -hmm. right? Was America founded in 1776? Is that the truth? Is it a deeper truth that it was founded in 1619? Or is that an opinion? Is that a belief? Mm -hmm. Is that a truth? Is that a fact? And then people argue about it. 
Well, it comes back to the definition of the word founded, I guess, fundamentally, you know, it's like, we don't agree because we don't agree what, what founded means. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, And I guess, I, I mean, I guess that's ultimately the problem of sharing truths or whatever is we're all kind of speaking different languages. Like we all have different understandings of what we're talking about. And I think part of this can be traced to the splintering of the media. Like we're like our parents, you know, would have watched the same TV news that their friends watched, you know, growing up, like everyone was watching the same TV news reports. Everyone was watching the same, you know, footage coming out of Vietnam during the war. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And then it got all fractured with cable news. And then it got fractured even more with social media. So we're all in these silos consuming what we think are the facts, Mm -hmm. you know. But someone could say to me, well, I heard on Fox News something totally different. I'm like, well, what are you trusting Fox News for? And they say, well, what are you trusting the New York Times for? Sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm far from an expert on this. Um, so take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. My understanding from what I've read is that the three network TV, TV, three TV network era was really the exception to the way things have been. You know, like before TV was everywhere, there were like, a dozen newspapers in every town and everyone read the one they agreed with. So that's true. There were no more newspapers before. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not like we haven't been here before. It's just, it's, that's true. It's that that there was newspapers with a slant and a bias. Yeah. 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 Lee, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank um, you for having me. I really want to encourage guests to check out her books. Self-care is one of the funniest novels you'll read. What to Miss When is one of the funniest poetry collections you'll read. Um, so yeah, let's, you know, it, it's rare that a poetry collection makes the bestseller list. Uh, let's see if we can do, make it happen, listeners. Um, Thanks, Luke. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, before, uh, before we close out, do you want to tell everyone real quick where they can find you, where they can find your work? Sure. So I have a website. It's leestein.com. And my first name is spelled L-E-I-G-H. And I also write a Sunday newsletter about writing and the book publishing industry and the media industry where I try to share uh, you know, real talk that you're not hearing anywhere else. Right on. Awesome. Well, this has been Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and you can find me uh, at LukeTHarrington.com or on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. I think it's easy, uh, especially for people my age who weren't there, to kind of romanticize the media landscape of the mid-20th century. Um, Lee and I were talking about that a little bit, about how, you know, when there were only three TV networks, everybody had to watch the same thing and uh, get the same information, and people were at least on the same page, you know, Um which, there, you know, I think there is a certain value in, and obviously the, the mid-20th century had its share of problems. Um, but I think one thing that it was somewhat good at was productive disagreement. Um, if you'll indulge me for a second, I'd kind of like to sing the praises of one of the most misunderstood regulations of the era, which was the 
the fairness doctrine. Um, now, I know a lot of people hear fairness doctrine and their, their defenses go up. You know, the government was telling networks what they could and couldn't say. Um, and that's why I say I think, I think it was, it's a very misunderstood law um, because I think a lot of people, you know, it's been 40 years now since we eliminated it. So a lot of people uh, don't understand what it was. Um, don't remember what it was. Um, there's this kind of this misconception that it was a law that, you know, TV networks and radio networks had to give equal time to all opposing sides of a view and had to um, treat all views exactly the same, that sort of thing. It actually wasn't that. Um, and you can look this up if you don't believe me. Uh, the actual Fairness Doctrine, which the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, had in place since basically the beginning of radio until um, the Reagan administration. But the actual Fairness Doctrine only required uh, TV and radio stations to do two things. One was to actually cover controversial issues, right? So if you had a radio station or a TV station, you couldn't just be all entertainment all the time or whatever, you had to uh, actually give coverage to, you know, uh, matters of uh, public import. Um, so you had to do that and you had to give voice to all views of it. Um, and it wasn't an equal time thing, you know. Um, you know, you could have a three-hour right-wing show if you want and then give like, 30 seconds on the news to the left-wing view or whatever. Um, it was it really gave networks and, and stations pretty broad freedom on how, how to cover these things. Um, it just required that they did cover these things. Um, now, I, I think a lot of people in the modern era uh, see something like that and they go, well, that was anti-free speech. Um, and I, I guess that... that gives you a pretty good idea of how much the thinking has shifted in the last few decades as to what free speech actually is. Um, at the time the Fairness Doctrine was introduced, it was considered very pro-free speech by a lot of people. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, and it's, you know, it's not necessarily a reason that's relevant in the area of the internet, but it is a real reason, um, which is that it is literally physically impossible uh, for everybody in a community to have their own TV station, to have their own radio station. Um, and that's just a matter of bandwidth, right? Like the air, the airwaves don't have room for everybody to have their own their own station. Um, you know, even if even if everybody could afford to open one, which obviously they couldn't. Um, when radio was first introduced, um, there was this real sense that because airspace was limited, the airwaves ought to belong to the people collectively and that they ought to be used for the public good. Um, so if everybody's going to be listening or watching the same channels, um, we ought to use these channels to inform people and to help them disagree productively in the public sphere, you know? Um, and so it wasn't necessarily this idea of we have to treat 
all views as if they're equally good or equally valid so much as we have to treat all views as if they exist, um, you know, because their very existence matters, right? Like the fact that people feel a certain way, they could be 100% wrong, but it matters that they feel that way because we need to disagree productively so we can move forward as a society, I guess. Um, now, obviously, that's changed for a large number of reasons in the last uh, 40 years. Um, in um, 1982, I believe, Ronald Reagan made Mark S. Fowler the head of the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission. And uh, his catchphrase was, as far as we're concerned, TV is just a toaster with pictures, right? It's just an appliance. We don't care what's on it. We don't need to regulate it. It's just people make it, they sell it, they make money. People put TV shows on it, they make money. Um, which is really just a complete reversal of how we had thought about mass communications up to that point. Um, just this, this idea that they ought to be used responsibly and for the public good was completely thrown out the window and now you can do whatever you want with it. Um, which again, you know, there are certain types who see that as, as very pro free speech. Um, but if, you know, even if you consider free speech to be just this negative freedom of everybody can do what they want, I think it's clear that that's not necessarily in the interest of the public good, you know, and when I say public good, I know somebody's going to say, well, that's entirely subjective. But I, you know, I think, I feel like I'm talking about a physical reality as much as the, the bandwidth thing, right? Like, regardless of anything else, we are all here and we all need to live and work together. Um, and what we're working toward, you know, sure, that's up for debate, but we can't be constantly at each other's throats like that is objectively bad for everyone i think um you know the kind of the immediate result of the fairness doc the end of the fairness doctrine in part was uh conservative talk radio you know um just people who listened to, to rush limbaugh and his followers all day and you know i i feel like it's pretty obvious that that doesn't lead to productive disagreement. It just leads to people hearing the same opinions all day long and getting angrier and angrier about them. Um, and obviously this isn't a left-wing right-wing thing. There are left-wing equivalents, like for instance, Facebook groups, like the one we talked about in the conversation. Um, now I'm not advocating that we bring the fairness doctrine of the days of yore back. I'm not even sure how you would do that in the era of the internet. Like, I don't know how that's, how it's even relevant to modern technology. Um, but what I am saying is that I think the lesson of the end of the fairness doctrine and the lesson of the rise of social media and everything that's happened since is that there is a lot more money to be made in keeping people divided, making them angry, 
making sure they don't interact with people who they fundamentally disagree with um, than there is to be made in fostering community, uh, getting people to live and work together and agree in a way that is productive. Um, and I, you know, I, I think a lot of the problems we're seeing right now go back to making the profit motive above everything. Anyway, that's it for this week. Um, if you like what I'm doing, speaking of the profit motive, um, I am uh, happy to announce that we have a brand new Patreon up. Um, Patreon, if you're unfamiliar, is a website where you can patronize, i.e. Uh, give money to creators that you like. Um, this is a listener-supported podcast uh, because... I don't want to be tied to the profit motive. You know, I don't want uh, Coca-Cola or anybody else dictating what I and my guests say on this show. Um, so if you think what I'm doing here, fostering conversation, encouraging uh, people to think deeply about their uh, preconceptions and convictions, if you think that's valuable, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. Um, go to patreon.com slash changed my mind. So that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash changed my mind. And you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. Um, if you support us for $3 a month, you'll get early access to the episodes. If you support us for five, you'll get access to bonus episodes as well. Um, I talked about this in the bumper midway through the show, but I have a great conversation with Tasha Robinson going up shortly. Um, so yeah, um, go to patreon.com slash change my mind. If you don't have any money to throw at me, which I understand times are tough, um, please just take a second to review and rate the show on your favorite podcast app. I guess Apple Podcasts is the big one, but if you want to rate and review it somewhere else, you get a high five from me as well. And I will read your review on the air. Um, I should mention, we also have a new email address for the show, and that's changedmymindpod at gmail.com. I've been saying we a lot. Um, we are a team now. You know, This isn't just the Luke show anymore. Um, I have a producer on board as well. Um, his name is Blake Collier. He's great. You should look him up. Um, also a really excellent writer. Um, so to recap, uh, email me at changemymindpod, that's changemymindpod at gmail.com um, with any thoughts you have about this or any other episode. Um, go to patreon.com slash changemymind to become a supporter of the show. And I don't know, buy my books, I guess. Uh, my books are great, or at least that's what my mom thinks. Um, all right, Change My Mind is... Produced by Blake Collier. It's edited by Jonathan Clausen, and it is presented by Raven Creek Social Club. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind. <laughs>